0: The two, the three, the four. Five points, five points. Five points. One, to the two, the three, the four. Five points, five points. Five points. Five points. This was really going down. It's still, we in, the, we in the vibe, we in the flow. We two shots in. Two shots
1: in, y'all. We are two shots in, and we are just reminiscing so on the A3C festival that was, you know, we did our first live ever broadcast from there. you know what I'm saying yeah. the audience live studio audience I should say it wasn't technically a live broadcast y'all but we spoke to none other than the dirty Dr. Dax which I'm gonna let Rodney try to how do we what do we give his title the 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 bug within the within the within the collective the uh
0: Man, you can do that better than the me. En- the man. energy, the essence,
1: the well, party monster.
2: It started off by accident, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, he was friends. He, you know, he came friends with, with with Gip and he came to Atlanta because he was obsessed with the graffiti that he saw Ray Murray do. Um so after a while, you know, he kinda ran into these guys at an early age his teens. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, just like them, they were just a bunch he was just a young creative kid from uh, a little a little outside the tracks, other side of the tracks, I guess you say. And, right, uh, right. Thought of himself as an oddball, and he met another group of oddballs that helped shape the culture of Atlanta. But uh, his, his, t- yeah, I guess his role within the collective has always been up for, I guess, debate or mis- it's a mystery to a lot of people. I'd say mm.
2: artistic direction. Yeah, he's exactly, helped out yeah. with a couple
1: of music That's videos. We were able to find out exactly. He's um, a muralist. Right, right, <laughs> you know? right, right. And yeah, that like, well-known artist today. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so he, you know, we caught up with him at A3C where he told us. Some of the backstories before he went legit, as he said it. You know, he actually did to use the term, I'm legit now, whatever that means. You're going to mm. have to listen to it and find out. But definitely, it was a blast for us. I mean, you two got to spend a lot more time at A3C. I only was there. I was really only there for, that day. for our panel. What oh, else yeah. did you guys check out?
2: Oh, man. Well, I mean, the theme of this year was 1996. And so, mm. like, a major highlight of the festival was, um, like, this entire day of acts that became big in that year, which was a watershed year for hip hop in the sense that it sort of migrated outside of New York. And all of a sudden you started seeing cultural contributions from like all these other different regions. You right. started seeing like people from the south, mm-hmm. Bun B to obviously like Outcast. Um Bone Thugs and Harmony was like a major ha- headliner this year. Um, and then obviously Too Short represented for the West Coast. Um, so I tried to see like as much of that as possible. There was definitely like a lot of great interviews. Um, there were some really great performances and stuff like that. So, I mean, that was cool.
0: Yeah. I'm the panel dude. I mean, last year when I went to a three C, I didn't see not one live performance. I just went straight panels. Yeah. Okay. And I actually did make some live performances this year. I caught too short. I caught the AT aliens. 20th anniversary right. Outcast sophomore album. It was a tribute show, so they had a whole bunch of different artists do the whole album in order. Oh, yeah! Shout Mr- out to my
1: boys, Go I think they did. Yeah, I think they, they did. Eight aliens,
0: they did. Mr. DJ was on the decks. Um, and and so yeah, that was cool. But man, I I was really into the panels. I got to see mass. It was cool watching Masterpiece speak. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like basically what two weeks after Solange's album. Drops right, and right. he's like the talk of the exactly. of the album right, right, in right. terms of those interludes, Piercy. you know what I mean. And it's it's cool that he also he all of a sudden has this whole new expanded fan base now of people who probably never gave two fucks about Master nope. P, you know. But now. Hearing his story and his entrepreneurial rise, it's all of a sudden got a whole new dimension for him. So, man, he told his story. It was great. Um, and, and shout out to um, the Cats of Day One radio, Brandon Peters and Maurice Garland, our Atlanta homeboys and, and, and colleagues in this hip-hop thing. They interviewed. Um, they interviewed Master P. Brandon interview interviewed too, too short. short. Too mm-hmm. short. Yeah, I missed that because I had a panel going on at the same time. It was mm-hmm. so great. Man, I want I want to see that so bad. I hope I hope they, they release a full video on that at one point. But um, yeah, A3C was tight, man. It was it was it was it was, it was it's always good. I, and like I say, and they really expanded the panel
1: so much that I, I really enjoy that part. Damn. Well. Ladies and gentlemen, if you missed A3C, you can still get a piece of it if you listen to our discussion with Dr. Dax with the Five Points Podcast.
0: Five points. Five points.
1: Let's roll. Ready to roll? Yeah. How y'all doing out here, though? All right, we got a little little bit of audience. Well, welcome. Uh, This is the Five Points Podcast, y'all.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, You know, our podcast. My name is Gavin Godfrey. To my left, skipping over our guest first is...
2: Christina Lee, and to my left is...
0: Rodney Carmichael.
1: You know, they say the jewel of the Nile. That dude is the jewel of the hooch. He is a legend oh. in Atlanta. <laughs> he is a legend <laughs> of the Chattahoochee. But, you know, the three of us got together a little while back, uh, you know, with Creative Loafing, Atlanta's local alternative newspaper, and we wanted to celebrate Outcast's 20th anniversary, um, their a tour that they did, the corresponding tour. The three of us linked up for a story. Rodney had this story bubbling in his head he had reached out to Christina. The three of us did a story that wasn't so much about OutKast, but it was about Atlanta culture, music, art, why you know OutKast was so influential, Dungeon Family, all that. Long story short, that guy sat on the floor right in front of you, Clay Bolton, our producer, said, why don't you guys turn this awesome story that, by the way, was rated by the Atlanta Press Club as one of the 10 best stories in Atlanta the last 50 years. Um, true well, story. Well, damn. True story. 50. They gave me a little keychain to prove it. Um, But anyway Clay put us together We have this podcast now We are here A3C invited us to come out Spend some time with you guys Obviously A3C is spending a lot of time Talking about 1996 Big year for Atlanta And you know One thing that was always prevalent in Atlanta From early 90s, late 80s to now Has been the Dungeon family And one person we wanted to have With us from DF Is Dr. Dax here with us Um, He's one guy you've probably seen everywhere. You've probably seen his art. You probably know his influence, but never knew the man behind all of it. So we wanted to bring him here to talk about Atlanta, 1996, all things in between. It's gonna be great.
3: How's it going, everybody? All right. Yeah, give it up. I am Dr. Dax, and this is A3C, the beginnings. What does A3C stand for? Do you know? All three coasts, man. All three coasts. That's right. Back in the day, we used to go... This one to- being the most important, of course.
1: Oh, yeah, but of course, South Coast. <laughs> I mean, What's so up? tell us how you how you got here, man, because, you know, a long time ago, you and I hung out at Bim's Liquor Store. It's a liquor store on West, on West Side, and we were throwing rocks at trains that you, as a graffiti artist, had tagged. And, you know, you were telling me how you first got to Atlanta in 1985?
3: Yeah, I came here to visit in 84, to visit my father and my brother. Okay. And then, uh, man, it had such an impact on me that I, I kind of, like use my magnetic force to get here. My father wasn't so welcoming of me moving here. So uh, when I went back to Florida, some shit went down with my mom and my stepdad, and there was no choice but for my dad to take me here, and I was so excited and I showed up. And uh, that was where all the things began, 1985. So once I got here, I started seeing graffiti. In 84, I started seeing the graffiti, which ended up being Ray Marie of Organized Noise, but that having the biggest impact on me from then till now.
1: Okay. And what were your first impressions of just Atlanta when you got here?
3: Well for me, I lived in the swamps of Florida and um, that's pretty much all I knew other than going to Cleveland, Ohio to go visit my grandma every summer. And that was kind of like Gotham City. And it didn't really appeal to me. I used to couldn't wait to get back to Florida. And then when I came here in 84 to visit and I rode Marta, I went to the, played video games at Lenox Mall, saw the graffiti out the windows and you know, the, the emerging culture which i didn't know was hip-hop everywhere else i just thought it was some shit going down in atlanta can i cuss yep. okay it well, was some shit yeah. going down in atlanta <laughs> and uh you know that shit just lit me up and uh, you know so once i moved here even style became important you know shoes and clothes and music of all sorts and uh there was also still a you know strong strong separatist thing going on i think a lot of black people and white people here tolerate each other but uh i you know i ended up going to atlanta public schools and Falling right into place with uh, the black community, and also the white community, so I always kind of had this whole world here as my own, and Atlanta was just an exciting place. It was a city, it was like a town that was becoming a city, but it wasn't Gotham. Right. It wasn't like rundown warehouses and like you know, coal miners and shit. So, I don't know, I just love the energy here, and I, I fell right into place. Okay. This is where I belong.
0: What's, what school did you go to?
3: I went to Grady High School. What? Uh, oh, Before that? Before that, I went to Morningside Elementary and uh, Inman Middle School. Okay, okay. Which to me, you know, I used to skip school and go to everybody else's schools, and there was no school better than Grady or more fun or more free. You know, I remember the first day of ninth grade in a homeroom, the teachers were like, if you want to be here and learn, you know, you're in the right place. If you want to clown and bullshit, you know, there's the door. You don't have to be here. But please let the people who want to learn and make some of themselves and graduate, let them get their education. So this isn't the place to play, so I walked out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
1: take option b
3: yes
2: so what were your haunts at this time when My you life. your haunts like where were you hanging out when you moved to atlanta Yeah,
3: when i moved to atlanta i um virginia highlands at that time was like i don't know it's kind of hard to describe it's kind of like where all the punk rockers hung out all the way up until little five points little five points is a little more scary that kind of was like nazi skinhead territory but um you know we started kind of <laughs> fighting against that and taking that area over especially because a lot of my friends actually live there their parents live there their grandparents live there so we weren't really we didn't really have anywhere else to go and um, so I spent most of my time on there and Ponce de Leon Avenue I hung out on Boulevard a lot because I lived on Argonne and 3rd which is just a couple blocks from Boulevard and Boulevard was a hell of a fun street back then you know Grady homes and Capital Homes being towards the end of it and Bedford Ponds and just a lot of cool dudes and a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of what makes me me I think I got off of Boulevard.
2: What do you mean by that?
3: Just like my style and how I made my money and my hustle and stuff, you know? Like I started seeing how all my friends I you know, was playing G.I. Joe with by the time, you know, the summer was over and I got to Inman Middle School, they had a little money. And then by the time I got to high school, you know, once again, like summertime came, I spent the whole summer, went to Detroit and was traveling around. I got back and went to school and friends had like, you know, cars and shit. So I was like, man, what's going on? I gotta get involved. And they were like, well, you can't do what we do here this is our shit, but you can go over there and take a little five points over. So I started hustling, which wasn't all nightmares. There was a lot of night- nightmare stories, but uh, for the most part, you know, it gave me my life and gave me a lot of time and opportunity and money and cars and clothes, shit that makes you cool in Atlanta.
1: <laughs> well then, you know, you're the, you're the graffiti artist, you're hustling. Uh, you're idolizing Ray Murray, which I don't think a lot of people here knew that. Without also, even knowing that That's not I mean, He's a great graffiti artist. People know he's an amazing producer. He was just downstairs talking about it. If you missed it, sucks for you. But, my man, this guy idolized him, but people want to know, how did you eventually link up with Dungeon Family? Uh, the first time I, I met a, um, I started
3: picture framing. I dropped out of high school. I was working at like sweatshop type places that are around then. There'd be like English people with no green cards and you know, people with felonies and all that stuff. People who had a hard time getting a job, there was places you could work, like, you know, bootlegging jazz shirts that got sent out to New Orleans, and I started working at picture frame shops and stuff. Like, Farahas, she was a famous uh, picture framer over on 10th Street in Piedmont, but she she took me under her wing. And uh, from there, I, I, she got me a job at, like, a commercial frame shop, and I met a crip named Mel. He was in his 40s, but me and him got along real well. And he, we skipped work one day, and, uh, he introduced me to Cujo Goody, and me and Cujo hit it off real good. I guess he was kind of like an older version of me, as far as the attitude and right. stuff went, not no, having zero tolerance for anything. So I met Cujo Goody, and then, from, is my mic on? Right. Yeah, from there, I started meeting uh, Sleepy Brown. I started seeing Gip all the time. I remember seeing Gip skip in school, and we'd always look at each other, because I guess we were both kind of funny looking. <laughs> and from there, I started meeting them, and uh, I always remember them telling me that they were in the Dungeon family, as if I should care and I didn't care <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think they kind of bugged out on that you know was so, it because you I just didn't care I just didn't know <laughs> and uh okay. you know they were just like man you know you didn't, you didn't hear Southern Playlistic and these albums and stuff and I was uh. like yeah I heard the shit but I, I just don't care and it wasn't because of was nothing personal it was just I didn't care about anything okay. I had a bad attitude and like I didn't really care about your music I, I liked music but I didn't care I wasn't ever a fan clubber uh. and I was just all into graffiti and selling dope But I think they liked that vibe about me. You know, they were like, man, I remember skipping school and you got a Beamer and shit, you know. And then they found out they're like four years older than me. They're like, man, how are you so young? I was just like, man, I'm on it. And they weren't. (laughs) You know, believe it or not, like money-wise, they they didn't have nothing on me at the time. So I think they like looked up to me at that time. And uh, I started hanging out with Gip real hard. And um, I started getting into doing drugs and started kind of messing my life up. And Gip and Joy, I don't know if y'all know Joy, but they used to be married. And uh, they took me under their wings and like let me stay at their house. So I started going out to East Point and like staying with them, and started getting really you know inspired to get my shit together and not be a loser, which is kind of the direction I was heading, even though I had a lot of money. Right. Hmm. So they kind of helped me get focused and let me know that being creative was the most important thing that I had, and that God gave me this talent for a reason. It, it didn't really make a lot of sense till years later, but they kind of always pushed me. And um, being at the dungeon, those guys always pushed me. And like getting to know Ray Murray, and later on finding out he was the reason I was doing graffiti in the first place. Those guys gave me a tremendous push, and also it was like a, a friendly competition going on. You know, I'd show him like, "Look, I just painted this," and yeah. he'd be like, "Yeah, that's it's all right, good, nice try." You know, like <laughs> those guys are till this day, they're pretty harsh critics. Right? If yeah. your shit ain't fucking the best, they're they don't care. So, you know. That was a really that was a tremendous push, and being around those guys, man, and seeing how hard they were on each other, and also, uh, you know, the same thing back then there wasn't really a place for us. Right. You know, you can make all the music you wanted, but back in '93, '94, until stuff started coming out, there was no reason, there was no uh, incentive to right. do anything other than just to impress each other and be the fucking best. Which I guess to some people that would be called hip hop, you know. Right. We did not, we didn't call it that, but that's what it was. That's what it would be called.
1: So then, you know, you've also said. Like, you were the loner, you were kind of the outsider, and when it came to the legacy that Dungeon Family, Organized Noise, Outcast, Goody were building, you didn't give a fuck at the time. But, eventually you did, because they started to accept you for who you were, and you started to learn, you started to realize that, you know, there were people in Atlanta who were accepting of the other weirdos, so to speak.
3: Yeah, I mean, like, everybody back then, which I had my little place in it, but... Not really, but, you know, if you wanted to be cool, you had to make money. You had to have a hustle about you, and that was, like, important. I met those guys, and that wasn't important to them. They were really, really into their craft. And that was, like, a whole other side of me, which I learned later was the more important side of me. I didn't know back then, but they taught me, like, man, fuck all that shit. You need to goddamn just keep honing your craft. You have a lot of potential and one day it'll pay off. And I remember you, after years, I was like, well, you guys can goddamn get record deals and work deals and people buy this, but nobody's buying graffiti. There is no money in it. They were like, trust me, just keep on with it, stick to your heart. And uh, So I did, I just I stuck to my guns. And then mm-hmm. for some reason, you know, back, back in those days, people would say, what do you do? That wouldn't even come up in conversation. I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm a graffiti writer. That was some shit you didn't say. It was like saying you smoke crack. <laughs> you know, people like, you're a graffiti writer. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and then uh, those were some of the few guys especially in the black community that were like oh that's so dope because they cared about hip-hop and stuff like everybody else did not care about that girls weren't impressed so you know later on and also style wise we i never liked dressing like everybody else which in atlanta which we used to call everybody spoons you know everybody's wear the same exact shit, trends (laughs) styles Uh, and change Everybody everybody's like a spoon to fit together especially at school and then i'd run into these guys and like they didn't care about all that but we still had a lot of style and a lot of swagger so they really taught me how to be an individual, and that 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 created my self confidence. Okay. So having self confidence, like I mean, like through the roof. Especially like when they started sticking me in videos and stuff, and like all of us were never nobody high fived out walking down the street. And then like within one day, you know, like right. once that shit hit MTV, BET, I'm walking around getting high fives from the whole city. Right. What and then the, tr- the credibility I got from that, like people don't even know you, but they see you on TV, and all of a sudden they know they can trust you, even though they couldn't, or they shouldn't. <laughs> what was the first video you were in? The first video I was in was a uh, Black Ice with Outkast and um, oh, man. Goody Mob. Man. Yeah, Sky. Right. Yes. That was the video. Gip called me up and uh, wanted me in the video, and I, you know, I, and at first I didn't even really want to be in it. I was just like, man, like, what are you guys gonna have me doing, dude? I was like, I don't know about this. And they were like, what the hell is your problem? <laughs> and I also remember, I also remember bringing Dank. Like, my, my, we were flying out of San Francisco and going everywhere, and we were bringing Dank back. And I remember pulling out the dank and all them being like, we're not smoking that shit. What the hell is that? It's neon green with red hairs, you know? And I was like, dude, just hit this shit. Check this out. And, uh, and then I was like, I'm not going to do this video. And Gib was like, man, what's wrong with you? I was like, you're not going to make me look like a lame. And I'm not going to fucking, I was like, street credibility is everything out here. So I actually fought about being in the video. And like, Gib forced me to be in the video. And I'm so glad today that I did it. You know, and I don't know if you ain't seen the video. I was like, 17-year-old white kid with tattoos on my neck. Getting beat by an old black lady in the yard, the newspaper, and <laughs> fighting in it. They kind of had me just being me in it. So, so that like, shit changed my life.
0: So like, what kind of what kind of music were you into at the time?
3: Man, believe it or not, I was really into like dub, which is like a you know cousin of like
0: reggae yeah. and like like came out before dancehall,
3: like mm-hmm. King Tubby, and mm. I just really like I used to go to record stores and just like all those record covers. I just used to buy them, not even know what it was. I just liked the record covers so much. There was always really extravagant, kind of like untrained art on the covers and I started, the more I bought them, they were, every record till this day I still listen to them and they're all still so good. That's what I loved and I think that was another part of uh, getting along with Ray Murray and them. They were just like, wow, I used to like put them onto some shit, yeah. you know, like, that they didn't know about. And I also like punk music and like, my brother used to force me to listen to Stets of Sonic and Eric B and Rock Kim, you know, okay. skipping school or driving me to school. My, when I moved here, my brother was immersed in hip hop. He, he even had, uh, you know, used to write letters to Def Jam and they thought he was an A&R. I remember the first time I went in his room. He had huge Slick Rick posters that were like the posters you're supposed to stick on the street. He had Def Jam varsity jackets, yeah. and they used to send him records and, and uh, singles on cassette tapes and shit. So we used to. I remember hearing uh, LL Cool J bad weeks before anybody even knew it was coming out. Wow. Yeah. My brother was a genius like that. So I don't know, just like coming to Atlanta, I just like you had no choice but to be into this shit. Mm-hmm.
1: So then. 90s we're talking about now getting into mid 90s up on 96 obviously which is the big number here for this a3c conference but you know take us to 96 obviously this is a big time for this city because we got the olympics i don't know how the fuck we got it but we got it <laughs> you know what i'm saying billy payne was a miracle worker then he turned into like a slumlord grand dragon i heard but you know that's neither here nor Wait, there what? billy payne that's the man who got us the olympics yo crazy he pulled a coupe, and then he just yeah he went crazy but anyway we got he, that shit he opened the door for private <laughs> investors to rape our city there you go uh, let's start that's right the
0: there best heard, that's the best encapsulation i always yeah, i always
3: tell people i didn't fucking ruin this city and the drug dealers didn't either man the olympics did
0: wow
1: let's let's let's, 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 get, on no, let's so get on that so get on <laughs> that we get the big announcement we can
3: fist fight about it
1: there's izzy the weird ass <laughs> mascot but t- yeah take us through that because you are you're part of an entire scene yeah. that probably wasn't included well, I'll bring it in ninety six. Start
3: I started off in nineteen ninety before we go to ninety six because that was the year I heard that the Olympics was gonna be here. They were already talking about it way back then. That's not some shit that, you know, a month later they're like, oh it's ninety six, we should have the Olympics here. Let's just put it here. That, in nineteen ninety that's what started. I think that guy you're talking about and his family, they led the way for like getting the Olympics here, thinking this would be a great thing as if the city needed to change or something. And like back then there was more projects and you could fucking believe in this area. and, and it was always a You know, there's always like the white people were very scared of it all. And I was like, what is everybody scared of? There was like a fear, you know. And and when I first moved here to go back to the 80s, you know, people were talking about Wayne Williams and stuff. So there was always like, you know, like the the fact that there was like a real live boogeyman, at least for the black guys that knew. Gip and those guys were always talking about that shit and always had like, I mean, they looked over their shoulders as as if they were from the Bronx or something, you know, like graffiti writers like Jazz, you know, some of the guys who were older than me. They were they were alive and, and and around and very aware of the Wayne Williams thing and I think that set the tone for you know racial tensions in the city. Mm. But moving back up to 1990, they decided to put the Olympics here. In '93, it was it was put here. I think there was even a parade about it, okay. if I remember. And I remember skipping school and going to that. And I started noticing the cranes coming and everything getting knocked down. Like Pershing Point was already knocked down, and like. All the places where uh, the flavor was—not even just—I'm not going to talk just about projects, but even like cabbage towns and you know low poverty places where white people live, black people were—you know—I don't know why—but that's where all the flavor and all the all the shit worth mention of our city comes from. Mm-hmm. Started knocking these places down like it wasn't nothing, you know. So and I travel a lot. Right. So going up to '96, they decided to put the Olympics here, and I started—I started a war with them. I started trashing <laughs> all the cranes and smashing <laughs> windows out and peeing in them and. You know, doing graffiti all over them. I got pictures of it all.
2: Wait, what do you mean by trashing the crates <laughs> I just, I would just
3: kick them in, try to start them. You know, <laughs> fucking kick the joysticks off, to spray paint all in them, spray paint all the damn gauges. Just it's like you paint my name on it, you know, it was an all-out war, and people thought it was crazy. they were like, we, "Man, the Olympics is gonna be the shit," because <laughs> uh, people love sports, and I don't. I don't care about sports. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just never cared about sports. And I was like, I thought the Olympics was cool. If I did watch something, I'd watch some highlights, you know, some Mary Lou Retton or some shit. But I didn't want it. I didn't want it <laughs> to the damn. It, there's no reason to tear the damn city, which I consider this place a perfect place. Right. It was a perfect place. I traveled. I went to Cleveland. I've been and at that by '96, I'd been everywhere. I've been to Detroit and seen that place falling down and. Saw a lot of cool places, but there was nowhere like Atlanta. And 96, people, and nowhere was like this either. The music was, everybody listened to everything. Bahamadea was huge here. Like, you know, Lauryn Hill, Fuji's, razz all that shit was huge here. Mob d we loved that shit. The radio yep. still to this day, con- well, not no, so much no more, but I remember going to other cities and they only played East Coast, West Coast. Yep. Sometimes in New York, you don't hear New York shit, but here, the radio, Fresh Party Fridays, all that shit played everything. So... Up until '96, I just started a war about it, and like nobody got it, and uh, everybody was so happy. I still get mad, and I see people buying vintage '96 Olympic jackets and the new shoes that came out. And shit, I'm like, fuck that.
2: Wait, what's the name of the what's the name of the Olympic mascot again? What Izzy.
3: Name? Never heard of him. Izzy. <laughs>
0: of him. You remember Izzy, man? I do no, I remember agree. Izzy, I man. That shit's
3: ridiculous. Come on.
0: <laughs>
3: fuck so- Izzy. <laughs> no but uh, 96 this place was eclectic as hell man i'm talking about man freak nick homecomings on the au i mean jazz festivals oh, yeah. that stuff was live man okay I mean, I'm,
2: I'm looking around this room and i'm trying to figure out who's actually been at Freaknik, and i'm guessing probably no one yeah yeah there we ah, go there we go
1: do. all right
2: three four why don't you describe your own memories of freak nick. Fuck. i guess your shot. kids
3: are turning 20 today
2: <laughs> I'd say before we even get to the Olympics, talk about your memories of Freaknik and what that was like to experience. Oh, Freaknik
3: was so good for me because Freaknik started when I was still in high school and being big on skipping school and all that, I was in the mix. Yeah. And I've always been kind of a liaison for all things Atlanta, so I started meeting people like the Lost Boys. I remember like Gip and, what's uh, what's one dude from the Lost Boys. Kind of, uh, I mean, was, yeah. Mr. Cheeks. Yeah. Mr. Freaky Cheeks. I, know, but like, I remember when Gip was like, oh, I'm going to record Mr. Cheeks at the Dallas Austin studio. And I got there and he was like, oh man, I remember you from Freaknik back in yeah, the day. Yeah. You know? And I was like, man, I just met so many people. And like, back then, people who rapped and celebrities were like unicorns. You, didn't, you couldn't go to the department store and like, hang out with everybody. Right. It, it, there wasn't, you couldn't DM nobody or nothing. So people couldn't even believe I knew all the people I knew at that time. I'd already knew Kilo from skipping school. I was skipping school in ninth grade. Kilo was doing photo shoots at Piedmont Park. You right. know? So. I was like, I just always <laughs> fell into place with all that shit. But Freak Nick was just a huge traffic jam of all wild. Hell it's like, yeah, it was like, it was, okay, yeah. let's tell you, it's like, it's like spring break for black folks. Yep. That's what it was kind of like. Duh. And it wasn't just an AU thing. People came from everywhere. There'd be everywhere. motherfuckers from everywhere. Everywhere. I remember seeing Michigan plates, I mean, California I like plates. That was like the first time I saw it. And Yorkers I'm talking about, let's not talk about traffic jam I'm just like on PC Street. I'm talking about the whole city, Auburn Ave. Every damn street, the whole city, (laughs) all metropolitan Atlanta, was traffic jammed up. And we loved it. We loved it. And then, like, the police were tolerant of it for a while. And then at some point or another, they just, I don't know, I think, was it 97 or something? They were just like... Oh, there Olympics. you go. The Olympics once again. Really? Fucking strikes. again. Yo, Izzy was scared.
1: Put that on the record. The Olympics killed Freaknik. Izzy fuck that shit up again. Yeah.
3: And I remember people leaving town. White people used to leave town like, "Oh, we're leaving town that week." I'm like, "Why?" They're like, "Man, all these all these black motherfuckers are gonna come in and fuck shit up." I was like, "Good, let's get with it." Let's get with it. You know. And then I was like. And I was like, what are you scared of? And they're like, man, that's not a good time. You get robbed. I was like, these motherfuckers are driving nicer cars than all of us, and they're 18 years old in wow. college and shit, got rims and shit. Right. They don't want your fucking shit, man. I was like, hey, people they're coming to have fun and get laid. <laughs> and uh camcorder each other, you know? <laughs> get involved. <laughs> I miss Freak Nick, man. I mean, of course, it's like anything else, it got too big for right. itself, you know. Cause yeah. I remember one time I was like, this is ridiculous. It's Monday morning and it's still fucking traffic. Like, <laughs> I mean, and, you know? <laughs> People wouldn't leave. And some people never left, literally. There's right. people who are still here from Freaknik. That's a fact.
1: <laughs> <laughs> on the side of the road. The hangover still. On the side right. of the road, still peeing on everything. Mm. So, Freaknik, post-Freaknik, post post-Olympics, <laughs> Dungeon Fam, everybody, yourself, y'all are getting more clout around this city. And then you started. Beyond to, cloud. We were royal. You, you had beyond cloud. Even me. But you got a nickname. That was apparently given to you by Dre and Big called The Dirty Doctor. Yeah, Dirty Dr. Dax. Well, what is that called? And from? it was also called T. Rowski. Ski. Yeah, we need we we'll Bring us <laughs> to yeah, Ski. Well, speed on I was called Dr. Dax in the
3: graffiti game, and I swear they didn't even know nothing about this name, but I was such a nerd about graffiti. I used to go to New York and link up with, like, stay out in 49s and, like, I mean, like, really find the origin, the pioneers of what this is, this graffiti thing. And um, I came back with so much knowledge, and nobody really cared to hear it, except for other writers. And uh, I was just such a nerd about it, and I was so. So knowledgeable and seasoned that they started being like, You're Dr. Dax. You're like, I mean, I was only fucking twenty years old, but I already had eleven years in the game by ninety-six. And uh, I was selling dope and I always knew about, you know, X pills and MDMA way before everybody. And uh, <laughs> those guys were like, Man, you're the dirty damn doctor, you know? <laughs> they were like, and Drake coined that phrase. He also used to call me T Rao because I always had like cocaine on my nose and shit. So he was like, you know, you're you Ski, skiing in the raw, you know, <laughs> skiing in the raw. Ski. <laughs> So those names stuck real hard and until this day. I, I took the dirty off, and uh, I'm just Dr. Dax now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you take the dirty off?
3: I mean, like I'm legit now. For one, there's <laughs> really believe it or not, no matter what anybody thinks or says about me. I'm since 2009. I've been 100% legit. I don't. I don't. I stop at stop signs. My rib- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been in so much trouble and indictments. Even till this day, I have a null pros, which means in Latin, not prosecuted. So yeah. if I get if I get caught smoking a joint, we all after here, They might damn re-indict me. Wow. on trafficking, and f- manufacturing, all sorts of shit, you know? So I just started being cool, man, that was it. Daniel Kane, which you know Daniel Kane, his son, he told me, he's like, man, I can do no more magic for you. Like, it's over, just stop, you know? It's like a repeat of, it's like, uh, everything's not on record, but like when you go to court, even when I got arrested in Miami, they're just like reading off all my charges, yeah, which I've been expunged, dropped, null no process and I was like, man, all that stuff's been dropped, Nal no process. He's like, unfortunately, Today, Mr. Dax Ratnak, your past is coming back to haunt you. I was like, what past? It's all right." he's like, it's still here in the court records. You No bail. You know, and it's wow. like, oh, man. So wow. it's time to quit. And I'm glad I did because, you know, I have a flourishing art career now, which was always sitting right there, and I knew it, but I enjoyed selling dope and fucking around more than that. Mm. But now that, I, you know, I just turned 40, too. So I'm glad that as I turned 40 that, you know, selling dope when you're 18 is cute, but, you know, selling dope when you're 40 is fucking lame. <laughs> True. <laughs> Take that lesson lane. to heart, kids. But I never wasted my time. You know, all my friends, you know, I bought cars and hung out at gentlemen's Club like everybody else. But that's not all I did. I made sure to travel and I made sure to hone my craft. And that was a direct effect of, you know, the Dungeon family for sure, mostly being Ray Murray. And I know everybody in the Dungeon family always goes to Ray Murray. But, I mean, he truly is, our like, our God. But well, you know. let,
0: let's, let's talk about Ray Murray for a minute because you, you, you said you met him. All the way back as far as as early as like what '84. So, no, organizers. no, no, no.
3: I I saw his graffiti, the yes, Five Sarge. Kings. Okay. Didn't know who did this stuff. It was like I was nine years old when I moved here. I was eight when I first saw this stuff. So it's, I would compare, you know, my frame of mind being an eight-year-old, how kids read comic books and like kind of believe there's a superhero or the potential for that, and like riding Marta and looking out a window and seeing these rooftops of extravagant spray paint characters and the Five Kings and, and Ray Murray's name was Raz '69, and there was a guy named Fly and Smash. And, and like, riding the train lines and going far all the way up to you know, back then I think, like, College Park Station was the end of the line, or actually, before, I think West End was the end of the line back right. in the 80s, wow. but going up, up to there all the way from Lindbergh and, you know, east and west, you know how Marta runs, and seeing this graffiti and not being able to touch it, I used to just seriously skip school and ride back and forth just to keep looking at it, and then I started taking pictures of it, mm-hmm. and then knowing Ray, he never mentioned it to me, he's such a quiet, humble guy, you can't right. get shit out of him, and, like... I remember being, maybe it's probably like 98, I was in the dungeon and I seen graffiti over graffiti over graffiti and I was just always looking through it and I saw the Five Kings tag and I was like, man, Ray, who the fuck wrote that? And he was like, man, that's me, I'm Five Kings. And I was like, no <laughs> wow. fucking way, shut the wow. fuck up. Right. He was like, I'm Razz69. And I was like, Oh man. how have you never told me this? And I swear that I showed him uh, Frank Magazine, actually, I did a Frank Magazine thing, and I had did a whole thing about old, the first generation of Atlantic Graffiti. I remember showing him the stuff, and he never even said anything. Wow. I was like, well, how you always kept that from me? He's like, because oh, I was nobody, man. You know." Yeah. I was embarrassed almost, and I was like, well, that's everything I am. Until this day, he'll, he'll deny that. He'll be like, there's no way I inspired what I'm doing now, but he did. Okay, and so...
1: As, and thank know, God he
3: quit doing graffiti, because I don't think Outkast would have been a thing he'd be sitting well, doing with me. That's what I was going
1: to ask. I was saying like, Talking about this shit. What do you, how do you feel? Like, where would you have been without making those connections with those dudes?
3: Man, I would definitely... I, I don't even know where... I, I think I would just be selling dope still and trying to pay my lawyer, I swear <laughs> to God. I, I, just, I just... I probably wouldn't be doing it. I'd probably be like, okay, I'll tell you. I'd be like, I'd be just like a lot of other guys I grew up with who were writing graffiti and stopped probably by like 95, 96, and now the graffiti's like hitting hard. They're like, oh, I used to write back then too, man. I was Dax's partner, man, and they want all their credit, and they want all the acknowledgement. I'm like, you quit 20 years ago. You're nobody, you're irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So I never stopped, and um, that came from them guys, and if I didn't know them, I probably would've just quit graffiti, and I'd probably be regretting it real bad right now. Mm -hmm.
1: That's where I'd be. Can you remember the first time you heard the term atl First time I heard the term atl
2: yeah. do you even have any insight as to how that
0: term was even
3: created man you know what that's a really good question and i can't even say that i know but the first time i heard that term was right before the album dropped and when the promotions were going on and we all thought that was so sick mm-hmm. and atlanta at that time that was the there wasn't a lot of atlanta pride people wore new york hats and shit at that time some okay. people wore l.a hats and, uh, you know, a very few people, actually back then when only like nerdy white people from the suburbs wore Atlanta gear, until those guys. And the Atlanta Pride, I think, started up kind of then, and I had it all the way. I remember people used to wish they were from New York, people wish they were from everywhere, and I was like, I'm glad I'm sitting right here. Right. This is where it's at, and then the Pride started right then. Those guys were, you know, just in videos wearing Atlanta gear, that became a whole fashion trend, and the Pride began then. And, uh, but it wasn't as widespread as it is now by far. And it took quite, a, I would say it took until almost 2000 before it was like, you know, 99% of the city had Atlanta Pride. But it felt like you were a part of something that was really fresh and new and big. And like those guys used to even bug on me for taking pictures and filming all the time. I was always just filming it just from graffiti, I was right. always documenting. So he's like, man, come on, quit taking pictures all the time. What are you doing? And I was like, man, this is about to be the biggest thing in the world. Right. Like, we're, we're taking over. And they were like, dude, shut up, chill. Now they're like, hey, we're making an uh, organized noise documentary. we get all the archives? You know? <laughs> I was like, oh, there you go. <laughs> nobody, they, would, they didn't like getting their pictures taken, and none of them carried a camera, and they didn't let no one do that around them. Right. No one even cared.
2: So what was it that you were documenting, and what was it about that that man, you found so Man, Big like, Boy, me and
3: Big Boy are real good friends, and like for – I consider myself, I was like, his henchman for years, you know? (laughs) And um, just my, because I was always traveling. Even before them, I was traveling. So when I got to go to, um, when I got to go on tours with them, I always had connections in every city with graffiti writers. Every city, around the world, too. Even if I didn't have a personal connection, I could make a phone call. and I could, you know, I'd be like, yo, we need some weed in Japan when we get there. Have it waiting. You know, so I could make calls like that. And going on tour with them, I was doing graffiti in every city. This is how I was able to, you know, the term all city and graffiti means, in the subway days, means you did the other, every side of every train on every line, mm, on okay. every borough, and it transferred into every other city. Being in Atlanta meant that I had my name written on every side of every train line in every neighborhood in Atlanta, so I was all city, and I was like, man, I want to go all world, so x fares, uh, AirTran, yeah, to have x fares. Yeah. but if you, if you were younger than 21, you could fly for $21. So I was going everywhere on my own, and when I got to go on tour of Outcast, I was like, this is the perfect opportunity for me to go to every city riding on a tour bus with my legs hit back, watching cable, smoking blunts and bombing. So I started I always carried cameras around. So I was taking pictures of all that shit. And then while I was with them, you know, we started hanging out with like no doubt and people like that. I started taking pictures of all the shit. So it really just came naturally. And I was very selective. I had D V tapes and rolls of film. So I wasn't just snapping my ass off, but I snapped a lot of important moments. But my, my my intentions were just to like really take pictures of my own graffiti and any interesting graffiti I saw around the world at the time. So this is
0: the your tour that you're talking about. on your right? tour being the
3: Almighty tour, like the like Outkast becoming household names in the Philippines What, shit what, then, what you know?
0: was it like, man? You gotta give, us, give paint us a picture, of the the, the backstory of, of of these tours with Outkast as they're becoming, you know, what what they would become known as, which is the biggest rap group. Biggest selling rap duo of all time. Yeah. (laughs) Ever. Yeah.
3: Um, I mean, it was was exciting as hell because, I mean, I guess I'm just an opportunist, too. I just looked at it as a chance for me to go around the world and hang out and kick it with my friends, you know. And the excitement was insane because I remember going to L.A. with those guys and, like, you know, waiting in line to go to clubs and never getting in them. And then one year later, we're at the Playboy Mansion. Wow. So, I mean, it was that exciting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you can only imagine. And, like... You know, kind of always feeling like, man. I remember, I remember Big Boy telling me, like, man. I remember walking to the mall and motherfuckers wouldn't even give us directions or the time of day. Now they're asking for autographs, you know, mm-hmm. and he loved it. Mm-hmm. He was soaking it up. So he's, you know, just rolling around with them guys and soaking up all the attention that we really didn't get as children, maybe. So we were getting it
0: then. So, <laughs> it. so, so from 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 what we rec- we recall, because you know, in interviews back then and whatnot, they would always harp on the differences between Dre and Big. And you know, Dre- Big would have the tour bus that would the be smoking full of the bus. smokers. Yeah, the, and, and there was Dre- the smoking
3: bus and the charades bus or the yoga bus, which was great.
0: <laughs> okay. bu- and I got stuck on that bus
3: sometimes. Sometimes I would fucking the see the bus, bus driving off and the smoke pouring <laughs> out the windows. i be like, like running after it, like, hold on, wait for me, you know. And then I remember Dre being like, man, you just have to get on my bus, man. <laughs> you know? Fucking 20 hour drive to San Francisco. I get on there and it's like Erica Badu and Peaches and them sitting on the floor. <laughs> like doing yoga and shit and like with the kids with the toys on the floor and I was like high on X pills like, oh, you gotta be fucking You wouldn't crazy. do yoga with them? Huh? You wouldn't do yoga with them? No, definitely not doing yoga back in those days. There was actually the second time it happened, I jumped back off the bus and, and bought a flight. <laughs> That's how much Dre's bus, I hated it.
1: Damn.
3: But Big Boy's bus was nothing but black and mouth smoking, dang smoking, and I mean, we used to make mushroom tea. We used to steal the coffee maker from the hotel, I make mushroom tea, play with magnets on the fridge and shit, our bus was wild.
1: Back I used to even question. bring girls on
3: my bus. I used to bring girlfriends on the bus and send them home on fucking X-Fairs, Air Trans.
1: <laughs> Back to the x
3: So my bunk was fucking cozy. What
0: was your question? Uh, no, I asked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was the bus situation. I, I wanted to know the breakdown on that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, but the okay. big boys
3: okay. bus was the funnest place in the world.
0: Yeah. I, heard, I heard
1: about another fun place you told me about one time we were talking. I just remember the name was called Dungeon White. Dungeon uh, White. What? Oh, dungeon oh, White. Oh, oh. There were many that's dungeons, scary. but yeah, Dungeon, dungeon not White. Not a was there, was like a, there
3: was the original dungeon that was in the clay basement, to be in the dungeon dungeon. Then when they got, was, they say in like the documentary, it was like twenty-something million dollars. It was thirty-three million dollars is what Rico got. And the first thing they did was buy a mansion on Cascade, which I don't know if you guys know Cascade, but back then that was just like ridiculous. Even it's ridiculous now. Like you can go buy a mansion anywhere. He bought a mansion on Cascade, which was kind of like the, the Adams family or some right. shit. It had like spiders <laughs> and webs and shit everywhere. I remember the first thing he did was buy the million-dollar mixing board, which is as wide as this room, you know. And uh, that was the dungeon west. And then Ray Murray bought him a, almost like what I consider a cabin out by Lake Lanier, you know, like different houses. And he turned one of the little mini houses into the dungeon east. And then at that time, Bubba Sparks came around, and he got him, started making a lot of money, as y'all know. And he bought a house. And we built a studio in it on the north side, and that became the Dungeon White, which Sleepy ended up even moving in there. You know, right. People like Yolo, when Yolo was 15 years old, he used to be staying there. we babysit him with G-Rock and all them. Like A lot of meat, uh, Meathead being Future right. used to come stay over there and not do nothing but listen and look
0: wow. and learn. Oh he was yeah. studying, huh? So the Dungeon
3: White was a real thing.
0: Uh, plus Sleepy. <laughs> So Dungeon White kind of had a, a a double entendre to it. I'm yeah, because it was yeah, me and Bubba, yeah. it was
3: Bubba's house, but I'd been living there with him, and then Sleepy moved in, and the studio arised, yeah. and a lot of good music was made there is what people don't know. Like what? Um, uh, me and my baby in the Cadillac. Oh if we, like Sleepy made all that sh- There was a lot of shit that was made there. Future used to record songs there, you know. I think there's uh, songs y'all probably never heard, but there was a lot of songs that G-Rock, Yola... And Future were making back then as like a little click, you know. They were the younger guys, and the dungeon was it was so active that there wasn't really a lot of room for them at the time. And I mm. think they used to get kind of hurt by it, but it's just kind of like you got to, the dungeon, you had to wait around. Like you couldn't just show up. And Future showed up like that. He showed up like, yo, I'm, I'm your cousin, Reek, like your blood cousin, my auntie so and so. And he was like, all right, well, welcome home, but, you know, and like, but you can't <laughs> record just because you rap, you just, you, you know, you got to wait. Right. And, there, and there was a lot of people who were really impatient. I mean, even oh, being man. like, uh, G-Rock to Slim Calhoun's, you know, those mm-hmm. people, Killer Mike, mm-hmm. he, did, he was hanging around, he wasn't just all in the studio, everybody wasn't believing in him like that, mm-hmm. so, well, you know, if you wanted to be around and be a part of that, you had to spend 10 years hanging around before you were, they even used to tell me, I remember Future got the Dungeon Family tattoos, they're like, man, you gotta put another eight years in before you get that tattoo, can't do that. Oh, so he got it early, he <laughs> got it early. You, gotta, you gotta have a decade in it, oh, you know, man. you gotta show that you're, you're part of this.
0: So, so what did you think of a young Future?
3: Young Future was uh, very, very...
0: Um, What's it called? Like, like for instance,
3: he used to call me every day want me to front him X-pills and sell <laughs> X-pills. Hey, so he was a hustler. <laughs> he was from Edgewood. Okay. He was, he was kind of quiet and respectful, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But he was very, very, I mean, just like any other Atlanta kid that's a real Atlanta kid, he wanted to make money. Mm-hmm. He really wanted to make money, and he wanted to rap. And he did that. I mean, you can see him now. I knew he was going to be a star. He had the it factor. He had the hustle. I knew he'd either be the best drug dealer ever or he's going <laughs> to be the best rapper ever. I knew it. <laughs> I can play you songs, that he's killed it, you know? Have you ever heard a? Dump dump that dick off in that hoe and all that shit. He just killed that shit. I don't, yeah, I don't know, know if you never heard I don't them song. Like, Whoa! <laughs> yeah, fuck that bitch like you mad at her. Definitely a, not
0: on the a, radio. You know
3: what I'm talking about? That wasn't on the radio. That was that
0: was a, that was a song.
3: The pill uh, popper song and all that shit. That okay. stuff was in the strip clubs.
0: Ah, okay. What what strip clubs were were you? Um of, of you know uh, a regular in gentleman's that, in club. That era. The
3: gentleman's club was all our club. We didn't, it wasn't even just for like. It wasn't even like a strip club. It was like a. It was like a social gathering club. It was no different than going to like. I don't know. I want to say department store. A little more upscale than that. There was BIP rooms and pool tables and shit. But you know, I remember even like Meach from uh, BMF. Meach used to be there by himself with a braided rat tail riding a riding a rice burner motorcycle and shit. Right. But I mean, back then. I knew Mike Childs. I was cool with Mike Childs. I was uh, cool with the whole staff uh, there. And there was Club, Club Nicky's. Nicky's. Yeah. Club Nicky's was the shit, you know. Yeah. Magic City's always been tight. I've always been cool with Charles and all of them. Hmm. So that was just like our social scene. You know, we, we weren't like dirty old fuckers in there tricking or nothing like that. <laughs> like these, these same girls were like, we grew up with some of them. Some of them hung out in the clubs, normal clubs, Club 112, 559. So it was just a scene back then. Like, it was like a whole scene. And it went, it went beyond Atlanta. I remember like anytime Pimp C and them would come into town, they kicked it with us, you know, April, MJG, everybody Camouflage, mm-hmm. Soldier Slim, all these people would, like, if we were in their cities, we were welcome. I remember Soldier Slim taking us to Baton Rouge, you know, and they come here, we'd take them around. Like, there was mm-hmm. a, a camaraderie with the South back then, especially because, you know, every, we were so used to everybody not giving a fuck what we did, mm-hmm. so we started caring about each other, and it, so it, mm-hmm. we didn't really care about anything outside of what we call the 305-0404, with being like the trifecta of New Orleans, Miami, and Atlanta, and everything in between. So we cared about ourselves, and like that's when started, I think we started fucking people up because we'd just be like, we're over here loving each other, supporting each other, and still playing Nas on the radio. But th- we're important to ourselves, so like that became power. Right.
2: Yeah. So when Outkast was coming up with the term "AT aliens," like, what did that mean to you at first, and how that resonate with you?
3: I mean, I think I don't know about y'all, but I mean, it just made total sense. Like, man, we're yep. fucking, we're from outer space. We're fucking out of here. We're weird, but we we run shit. You know, we're, we, we we mesmerize the world. Atlanta being the damn, I mean, not so much now, but Atlanta was like the center of the Southern universe. And it is the capital of the South. And it's also used to be Terminus City, which was where all the train lines, till this day really, but you know, for 100 years, this connected uh, the South to the rest of the world, the East and the West. Like literally, like the bloodlines of of North America
1: and Canada and Mexico. So 20 years ago, now, what's the biggest change you see in Atlanta? What's the biggest thing that kind of sticks out to you when you see this city now? Strip
3: malls. Yeah. PetSmart, Target, Polte. <laughs> Back then it was like you know Chantrell's, and fucking Q Time and right. shit mm-hmm. like so that. Cool you know. Restaurants. Yeah, yeah, I mean like I mean I, I was just in New Orleans recently, man, and it just bummed me out about Atlanta. I was like, I don't care if you want to eat McDonald's. There's no McDonald's around. You're gonna eat a po' boy. Mm. And like, you, you want to go to a hardware store, you're going to go to some other, it's not even Ace Hardware, it's some motherfucker's name, hardware store, like, <laughs> even like a print shop, you're not going to Kinko's, like, right. I mean, like, New Orleans, Louisville, Kentucky, man, like, that, yeah. Like Cincinnati, I don't know, I haven't been there in a long time, but I know, like, right now, Louisville and New Orleans, there, there is not all this fucking, like, huge corporate takeover, mm. there might be one McDonald's in New Orleans, mm. and Atlanta used to be that, and I don't know how... People just let that go and let like accepted this. I remember Walmart wasn't here, and now there's a Walmart here. How did that happen? Freedom Parkway, everybody banned that. They started even building it, and everybody went against it. It used to be an abandoned Freedom Parkway, and we used to beat people up and sell dope and jump dirt jumps and built a skateboard ramp. Hell it yeah. was just like a, it was like the Lost Boys movie, like with the vampires back there, you know? Right, like, right, shit. And it was just like areas like that, you know? And like now there's a Freedom Parkway. They tore all them houses down, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just insane. Like, anything goes here. And money, you know, money, people started investing. And then once those people owned everything, then they started deciding what would happen here without mm. loving the integrity of it. Like, you're seeing North Shore where they're like, oh, these are the best waves in the world. And then people start wanting to come. And they're like, we should let pay, let charge people to surf here. And I'm being like, no, mm. this is ours, man. We've been surfing here for thousands of years. And Atlanta's is like that to me, too. This is like, the, like North Shore to Hawaii. Atlanta was to, like, you know, it's to the world but to the south. And everybody saw it and they wanted it and they got it. Mm. So here we are with a lack of flavor. I mean, there's no, there's nothing left. I, would, I, just, I, I was just not constantly on the other day taking some people around for photography and like the Claremont hotels just closed down. There's, thing, there's like a, a fence around it. There's no, there's no interesting characters. There's no, no there's nothing. It's just, a, it's just like everywhere else. And it's, just, that's terrible. You know, that people came here to party till the sun came up and like, right. see Freaknik, see cars. Car, if you look on Saturday night, there's not even nobody with cars anymore. There's no rims. There's no car culture. The culture is, like, dying. We have these things that go on, like, A3C, thank God, and people come here, but, like, mm-hmm. nobody's just coming here, on average, to Atlanta, just to see all things that are Atlanta, because those things aren't here anymore. Wow. That's deep, man.
0: That's, like, moment of silence time. Yeah, not to be too negative, but... Nah, it's real. It's nah, real. It's, it's real. real. Yeah.
1: It's real. They're here to see a goddamn streetcar and fucking CNN. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Low key. But, yeah, I mean, do you feel like, Beyond just like the the demographics and the geography here, creatively, do you still feel like that energy, that acceptance of, you know, the artists um, who were a little out there is still here in Atlanta when it was when you got here? Or is it? I mean, yeah, that's something too? that's still
3: here. I mean, I think music, the music scene is so strong. I mean, like, who would ever know that this shit would? Just, I mean, it's stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. It was not a phase. It's still here. It's still so important, man. And, it, and it's not even like people coming here and doing this shit. It's people from here. Right. And that's like. That's still there, but I wonder how long that's gonna last. Sometimes, like I wonder, because it's fizzled. in. not I mean? Imagine like how many people came out? Bowen Holmes, Shawty Low, T.I., Kilo, Dre. Right. Everybody came out of there, and like you're not gonna see that ever again. The most important people came from some of these places, and I. It's weird to say, but I mean, like something about those places, if something that was in the water, were making these people something yeah. happen. And that shit was happening generation after generation. And that's not gonna no more. They knocked it down. A lot of places like that. Techwood, man. There was like a lot of people. A lot of, lot of influential shit and, like, most important thing of the 20th and 21st century, you know, or whatever. It was the 19th and 20th century, whatever. The most important shit ever in the world, man. Like, when they talk about the turn of the century, they're going to talk about what was happening here culturally. Mm-hmm. So, that's, I think that's not going to, well, I hope it lasts, but, it, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it just disappeared. And, you know, I really was just looking forward to what else came out of these particular places.
0: Right. And that breaks my heart. Did you used to hang out in, uh, in the projects much?
3: Yeah, I did hang out in the projects, and uh, I thrived in the projects. Capital Homes and Grady Homes were my favorite, okay. but I hung out at Carver Homes. I hung out in, um, you know, Techwood, the Horseshoe, I mean, Bedford Pines. All those places were fun as hell. I mean, on Sunday, they didn't sell liquor in Atlanta, so if you right. wanted liquor, you had to go down there to the bootlegs, Bootleg, which were right. usually somewhere in the projects or near them. Yeah. And I was just willing to spend money, yeah. so they love me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, like... What 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 was Atlanta like back then in terms of like and I know you, you you've been talking about it already but if you really are trying to paint a picture of the difference between Atlanta now and Atlanta then I mean let's like,
3: talk about the police force here police force back then I don't remember the exact numbers statistics but I mean like there was something like ten thousand police here in the 80s and then by the time the 90s and the Olympics decided to be put here there was an extra ten thousand police mm-hmm. by the time the Olympics was actually here I think there was like another there's like 30,000 police and the red dog units and task force gang units. I mean, damn, everything. Parking enforcement. Right. Every, I mean, it's just all that came into play. And Atlanta just felt like a, what they call that, like Big Brother, New World Order. So yeah. I can feel it. Wow. I still feel it. There used to be a time where you didn't fuck around because we'd beat your ass and no one was ever going to come help you. Wow. And that's not the case now. And it felt like, you know, we felt like we, we regulated our own law here. Yeah. It felt like we were the government. Yeah. And I feel like we held it down pretty good, too. Atlanta never had a terrible reputation for gangs and, and mm. that much violence, you know? Right. I mean, just like any other city, that we had violence. But I don't think Atlanta wasn't looked at like a murder capital of the world, like New Orleans or D.C. or something. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we, I feel like it was just a good place. There was nothing wrong. Like, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I mean, like, Atlanta was the perfect place. And I don't know why everybody strives so much to clear out all this shit and make it such a... Like a suburb. I call it yep. the urban. It's a town that became exactly. a city that became a suburb. It's, man,
0: that's so good. Yeah. So I don't want to live in the
3: suburbs. That's why I live here. Right. I don't, don't want to live in Gwinnett, you know? So I don't. I never lived there, and I never wanted to. But now I feel like Gwinnett's more urban than right here.
0: So where do you live now?
3: Right now I live on the west side, right over by what they call the bench, which is what they call house station or night park. I got you. And in, That's a railroad neighborhood. The house I live in was actually the the owner of the railroad over there back in the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. I live in his house. I have a well in my basement. I can walk to the train tracks. I look at them every day. I hang out with people who have been in the neighborhood 70, 80 years, some of them. So they're still, you know, that's even getting, like, those people are getting kicked out now. They're getting, like, you know, some of these people have a lot of shit in their yard and too many people live in their house, and, like, they're getting ticketed and fined and stuff for doing what they've been doing in the neighborhood the whole time. Now you got, like, White lesbians, they're getting mad about it. No offense to white lesbians or white people, but, you know, they're getting <laughs> mad about this shit. And it's like, well, why would you move here? The, you, saw, you drove around this neighborhood when you decided right, to buy that right, house. Right. Well, well, now why are you mad? I moved in that neighborhood for those things. I want to see a forklift in your yard. I want to eat pig's feet. You know what I'm saying? Like
0: Gentrification, man. Gentrification, man. It's bullshit. Yeah.
3: So well, I'm going to sit here and continue to fucking scare everybody off. You know, fuck you. Get out of here. I love it. <laughs> you can't make me leave, you know? <laughs> I mean, the only reason I'm going to leave is if you kick everybody out of here, I'm going to go follow them. I moved here for the people, not the fucking, not your house or your fucking, whatever, your vanilla condo, the parking deck, Tell. coffee I'm, shop. I'm I want to make dope. coffee.
1: <laughs>
0: well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe we got a little bit of time left. Should we open it up for questions? Yeah. Or what y'all want to do? I'll
2: pass it on.
0: We're going to hand the mic off to some people in the audience and let them holla at Doc Uh-oh. the Dax. <laughs> What's going on, man? What's going on? Um, first off, I want to say that I think it's bogus as hell that you say like Gwinnett is urban now. Cause like coming from Uh, it's it's not urban. urban. I was I was just saying it's more urban, but
3: it seems like it. There's there's Mexican gangbanging going on. I see the writing on the wall.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've been living there for ten years before I moved out there. I was living in New York. So the transition and to see people trying to make it that it was like, guys, you got something kind of good here compared to what it's really like. So like I kind of like I didn't say I looked down upon it, but it was just like damn. Like I wish it would, people had that mindset, but at the same time I couldn't judge people for that. But when I come to Atlanta now, it's like I see that and I see the history that you talk about is being lost, and it reminds me of New York because Harlem isn't Harlem. Anymore. The
3: architect, yeah, I mean the Lower East Side and the Lower East Side.
0: Exactly. So it's like you know, how do you feel like you know as it pertains to Atlanta? How do you feel we should move forward?
3: I mean, me personally, I feel like I feel like moving to Augusta. Because it still feels like what Atlanta felt like when I moved here in 85. And I mean, I, I'm not being totally negative. Atlanta's still fun as hell, man. I mean, like, like like Edgewood. I still love rolling down Edgewood. I still like going to MJQ. There's still a couple of things left. But just on like, just on average, I mean, Atlanta used to be 24-7. Every neighborhood was cool. There was nowhere I didn't like going. I loved Buckhead. I loved every single inch of this metropolitan part of Even the suburbs. I used to go to Sandy Springs and have fun out there. And now I just don't thrive like that. I got to go hunt for what's real and what's, what is what what is urban, you know, and like, to live in a city, there's elements that make a city a city, you know, and PetSmart and Home Depot is not that. Yeah, yeah, no
1: offense. <laughs> you said culturally you had young cats, like future back before he became future and everything, putting in 10, 20 years and everything. How would young cats nowadays, where would they have to go to play in 10, 20 years to get to where you at?
3: I mean, the department store was a great place. I felt like that was the epicenter. There's places like that. There's places like 688 and like Metroplex. That's where punk rock music thrived here. Then there's places like 559's and strip clubs. There's like places where the, is the epicenter is like ground zero for where the scene is and like where people are listening to each other, where the talk starts. Department store just shut down, which is sad, but there'll be another one, but you gotta be in those places at the right time. That's for sure, pay attention. And if you don't like being in those places, this might not be for you, but like people are always talking shit about department store, I'm 40 years old. I miss that place right now. That place held the energy of what Atlanta always was, a certain tempo. You know, some people might even be intimidated. It wasn't for a timid person, but like, I love that energy. You know, you hang out with 2-9 and those guys, some people are intimidated by those guys. I, I like to get them in headlocks and hang out with those guys. I can't wait to hear their new music. You know, I start talking about it. Everybody talks about it. There's gotta be a place where it all begins, you know? And I think there'll be another one. They're talking about the warehouse a lot now. and But there's gotta be a venue, especially in music, where all these uh, creatives and people come together. And there's always been places like that, whether it be a beatnik generation, hippies on H Street, whatever it is, there's always a place. And Atlanta always has a place. You just gotta find it and, and, and you, you gotta be there. And, and if you think you got it, fly to the top of the flagpole and see who salutes it, you know? And if they don't, don't give up, you know? just goddamn Like we were watching Organized Noise earlier, and it's yeah. the same, it reminded me of being a kid, it's like, motherfucker, you better go all out. For real, go all out, not even just saying it. Don't sleep. Don't look up, don't look around, don't be hanging out and partying until you get your check. Get a check, and if, until you get a check, don't be fucking thinking you're somebody. Just get your checks. Then go buy you a car and be somebody.
2: I'm gonna get, get a check tattooed to my body. Does anyone else have don't questions? cash a check.
3: <laughs> on your iPhone.
1: Hello. Um, Hola.
2: My name is Cherish.
1: I wanted to know what element do you think Outkast brought to the hip hop industry? Like, I had a class where um, I have a class about Tupac at my university, and my professor argued that Tupac was the first person to introduce the element of cool to hip hop, and I argue that I believe Andre 3000. What was. about CL
3: Smooth and them? But no, no.
1: I went Outkast and Andre 3000, and I believe they kidding. were cooler than Tupac just off rip. So I just want to know, you know, what do you think it was that they actually gave to the music industry that made them just like so solid? I think they
3: set a new standard, you know. I mean, up until that point, hip hop had a couple of evolutions, but you know, there was a lot of sampling going on and people like not really just like making things from scratch. And I feel like they they did that and they opened up I can't say the whole world, but they mean the South, they they opened the doors wide open for the South. There's people who've been around. But after that, people started wanting to hear other things from the South. So, and there was a lot of things from Atlanta. The Outkast wasn't the first rap group out of Atlanta by no means, but to break out of the South, they were the ones who did that. Like, and I wouldn't even say Outkast, I'd say mostly Organized Noise did that. And they used Outkast as their outlet to do that. But I mean, Outkast brought so much to the table. You, you know, you didn't have to wear a fucking starter jackets or throwback jerseys after they came out. You could, you know, started, you see people now, they people, being original is a thing. Back then it wasn't so much a thing. You better be on that trend or you're gonna have a hard time. Let's talk about Tupac. Tupac used to kick it here. We used to hang out with Tupac, eat X pills and
0: shit. But Before we get out of here, I, w- I want to ask you one question that kind of goes back to where you are now. Because I think over the last five years or so, we've kind of seen this transfer of energy in Atlanta from you know, the hip-hop scene to visual art, You know, going, going to the art event on the weekend. That's like the new party before the club spot. You know what I'm saying? And you know, it's really brought light to cats like you and the visual art that you've been doing all these years that people are just now kind of getting hip to. And in a, in a lot of ways, it feels like it has that same sense of um, creativity and urgency. Um,
3: Way open minded. I'm glad you brought that up because all the negative shit I said about Atlanta now. What I do love about Atlanta now is that the art game is like wide open. I'll give it up to people like Maya Bailey and like Paper Frank for like really opening those doors up. Art's been around here, but like most black kids, let's be real, they weren't trying to paint or be artists or draw. Some of them did, but you're probably an introvert. And those guys made it really fucking cool to do art here. And I've been doing my art everywhere else but here. And I feel like they opened up the doors for even guys like me. Back back in the day, it was only Radcliffe Bailey. That was the only guy who could say he was this shit. He was a master, and he's the highest-paid black artist in, in, of all time after Basquiat, And he's still around, but like, he didn't open up any doors. He didn't inspire a lot of people. he's kind of a, if you know Radcliffe, he's not. He's probably cool right now, but he wasn't cool in the '90s, right. you know. But people like Paper, Frank, and Maya, I got to give it up to them, man. They fucking opened it wide open, and I'm loving. The reason I'm staying here is because like my, my career is art, and even though I don't like all the other aspects of the things lost, I did gain that.
2: Do we have time for one more question?
3: Then uh what do you think about the Atlanta culture and sound being appropriated around the US and going beyond? You talked about at that time New York wasn't accepting of, of Atlanta and now everybody wants to sound like they're from Atlanta. I think that I think that happens by nature. People always jump on trends, you know. And I'll tell you what I don't like about it is like even in graffiti, like if you're from Philly, I can tell by your, your tag you're from Philly. If you're from L.A., I know because you write like that specifically because it's regional, sounds are regional, graffiti things, style, the way people dress, and I've missed that. I miss being like, oh, I know right where the fuck you're from. We saw those guys earlier. Yeah. You got that D hat on. You're from the D, you know. I can tell where you're from by those things, and uh, that's kind of what's lost too. Like I mean, you might play your song, and I'm like, shit, where'd you go to high school at? And they know that I'm like, where's that? L.A., that, that, I never heard of that. Like, why do you sound like that? That's kind of weird. But I think it, uh, those are the natural progressions of things, and it just goes to show that we run the world.
2: Any parting words, Dr. Dux?
3: Uh Don't eat the yellow snow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we're a bra when you double-dutch.
2: Man, give it the fuck up Dux.
1: for Dr. Dux. Nice thank you, thank you, oh, baby. Thank y'all! Amazing. Thank y'all for coming and hanging out with the Five Points podcast. Y'all can check us out on SoundCloud and iTunes. One more round of applause for Dax. Me and Gavin. Me and Gavin will be breaking into the department store tonight. Yeah. And opening it back up. Bringing it back to life. Let's go. <laughs> Open mic, baby. <laughs> All right, we out.
0: Appreciate y'all for coming. One to the two, the three, the four. Five points. Point, five points. Five points. One to the two, the three, the four. Five points, five points, five points. This was really going down.